We're going to be looking at Hebrews chapter 3 again. Thanks, Eddie. Verse 13. We're going to continue with our look at sin and how it affects people's lives and uh, how it is that the world is under its spell. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 13. But exhort one another daily, while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for this time. We can look into your word and we just pray that our hearts would be fully open to it. That you would give us the understanding to be able to grasp its truths. Not just to understand, Lord, but to live it. I ask that you use me now for your purposes, for your glory. And I pray that your spirit would superintend this meeting now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Several years ago, a family was visiting Niagara Falls. It was during springtime. And they were at the top of the falls. And as they were watching the water flow towards the edge and go over, a lot of the ice that had, that had formed over the, the winter months was breaking off and huge chunks of ice were sort of going down this river and then going over the edge. But as they looked, they saw something interesting. A lot of seagulls were sitting on the ice, on those chunks of ice, and then flying off as soon as, or just before they would go over the edge. And as they had a closer look, they noticed that in the ice were fish, that had been, certain fish that had been frozen in there. So the seagulls were flying down, landing on the ice, and they'd stand on the ice and they'd be pecking at the thing to try to get the fish. And sometimes they'd get the fish and they'd be eating this fish as this thing would be going down the actual river. And then just before the edge would come, they'd start flapping and away they'd go. And they'd do their, their circle and go back around and look for another piece of ice they can land on. Amazing, isn't it? As, as they looked, there was a particular, one of the particular birds was holding on for much longer. He wasn't flying off. So as they're watching this bird go towards the edge, he was so intent on getting this fish, right? He was so, he was so entranced with it, they thought, this bird, when's he going to fly? He was, he was heading closer and closer to the edge. Well, as he got closer to the edge, he started to flap his wings. But as it happened, his feet and his claws got iced in. So as he started to fly, he tried to lift himself up, but his feet were firmly stuck on that ice. And the bird went over the edge and ended up at the bottom of, the, uh, of Niagara Falls. Probably he went to his death. I don't think he probably would have survived it. Man's attraction to sin is much like that seagull, when you think of it. Man loves to be focused so much that he doesn't know what's happening around him, but he'll wait and he, th and he thinks to himself, oh, it's not going to get me in the end. This is not going to trap me. This is, I'll be able to just get away in time. But everyone goes to their death. Everyone falls down that, that great, what do you want to call it? That um, abyss that heads into hell. Unless they're rescued first. Unless they see what's actually going on around them and they, re they realise, what am I doing? And they turn to Christ for salvation. Sin is very much like that. It takes people smoothly to their destruction. And they think there's plenty of time. 
Last week we began a look at this particular verse and we started to look at sin and what its relationship was to the law. Do you remember that? And we said that, that when we spoke about the law and how God gave the law, the law was given to reveal sin, to show people that they were sinners. And that's a good thing because the law perfectly showed people that they had a definite need. But you know something? The law couldn't fulfill the need. The law could show you that you're a sinner. It condemned you for being a sinner, but it couldn't help you. It couldn't help us not to sin. It couldn't pay the penalty for us. It just said, you've got a penalty to pay. It could only condemn us. We spoke about the new nature that God had given us as well. And how with this new nature, God had made us, in a sense, with this new nature to fulfil that law. That, we, that this new nature naturally fulfils and has a desire to live that law. And even though we weren't under the law, do you remember the example of the, uh, I gave you of driving, driving a car? And if, imagine if you could never get a ticket. Imagine if you were exempt from getting a ticket what would you do with that with that freedom well that's the freedom the christian has exemption from condemnation the real question is is what you do with that freedom now the christian should be the model citizen from an uh, from a heaven's point of view we should be the examples to this world as to what the law or how it is to live the law even though we are under, under the condemnation or the, or the burden of the law. Today we're going to begin our look at how sin enters a person's life, whether Christian or non-Christian. We're going to look and see how, what avenues it begins to take, what devices the devil uses to infiltrate. And we're going to, we're going to continue this over the next few weeks. So I want us to understand how it is that people get so caught up in sin. Why is it the whole world is ensnared by it? Why is it that so many Christians are bound by it as well? And even though they've escaped it for a time, sometimes they get caught up in it again. I want us to understand what processes Satan uses, what devices he has in his armour, in his his quiver against us. How does he sell us something so deadly and we buy it turn with me i want to i want to start off with something i want to look at three quick passages in scripture first is matthew chapter 22 verse 36 matthew 22:36 Keep these passages in mind as we're reading them. And I want you to think about them because I'm going to ask a few questions about them at the end. Matthew 22, 36 says, Master, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. Okay? Now turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. 
1 Corinthians 10, 31. Whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all for the glory of God. Okay, got that? Ephesians chapter 3, verse 17. Ephesians 3.17 says, this is Paul's desire for the Ephesians. Listen carefully, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ, which passeth, all, passeth knowledge, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God, now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us, unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. Now, if I were to ask you a question, what is the purpose of your life? Why are you here? If, there was, if you had to really narrow it down, and say, why was I created in the first place? What am I doing here? What sort of answers would we give? What range of things would we say? To serve? To serve, yeah. Anything else you can think of? Anything you've picked up from these things over here? Glorify God, yeah. To love God, yeah. Anything else you can think of? Well, those ones are all true. To serve him, to love him, to glorify him. So what's your focus? Him. Why were we created? For him. Pure and simple. We were created for him. To love him, to adore him, to focus our lives on him, to cherish him, to serve him, to obey him. In everything, we were designed and created for him. In other words, God made us to be connected to him. That he would be the first thing in our lives. Why the, that's why the, the Ten Commandments start with who? With everyone else or with him? The Ten Commandments start with him. That we have no other gods in our lives. That we are to... Um, have no idols and make nothing else that looks even remotely like him or anything else and serve it. That we are to remember him on the Sabbath. That in every way, he is to be our focus in our lives. So our attention, our devotion, our love, our worship, our obedience is meant to be to God. That's how we were created. That's our naturally what we are meant to do. So the answer came fairly easily, didn't it? What about living it? How easy is that? Why do people struggle so much with actually living that? Why does everything else get in the way? 
Why do we find that after a short amount of time, what may start off with our desire to love him and worship him and put him first and everything, all of a sudden then starts taking a back step to everything else that we see happening around us? Why is it? Now, Jesus, Jesus repeats the same thing. Now, listen to this. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he that taketh not his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He that findeth his life shall lose it. And he that loseth his life for my sake shall find it. What was Jesus saying here? Who is Jesus saying he is here? If God in, throughout all the Bible is teaching and clearly teaches that he is the focus of our existence and, and our whole life should revolve around him, then here comes Jesus says, if you love anyone else, including your own life more than me, you're not worthy to even follow me. Who is he? He's God in the flesh. You can't escape that what he's saying there. Because the first commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul and strength. And Jesus is saying that love should be focused at him. Do you see the, the calling that we have? Do you see the purpose that we were created for? It's to be with him. Then why is it that man has lost his purpose altogether? Why is it that man is so distracted. Why is it that man doesn't just go from a state of loving God with all his heart and fall back to a neutral position, but rather he, instead of going from loving God, he goes the exact opposite way to sinning and disobeying and hating and rebelling and do, the exact opposite. You see, there's a, there's a midway point there, isn't there? That's called neutrality. But man isn't neutral even. So man went from being designed and supposing to love God and focus everything on him to man focusing on everything else rather than God. And not just that, not just focusing on other things, but actually hating God. The Bible says that we were enemies of God before he saved us. Enemies. So man not, didn't just say, oh, no, I know God's there. I'll, I won't, I won't, look, I don't hate him. I don't love him. I'm just going to be neutral towards him. Man didn't do that. Man went the exact opposite way. And that's what we find continually in our society. That man hates God. And the reason, and we know that because man continually sins and breaks God's commandments. He isn't neutral towards him. He does the exact opposite. He does the things that God hates. How do we end up in that situation? If God made us for, his, for this purpose, that he created us with an inherent need to worship him, to adore him, to love him, to receive that love and his attention and his blessings, why is it that man most often is found doing the exact opposite? Doing or living a life that's contrary to that calling. Where does the fall start? That's what I want to start looking at today. How does that fall start from loving from focusing to focusing on something totally different and then becoming an enemy. Well, if you look at that verse that Jesus says, he who loses, he who finds his life shall lose it, it's a good place to start. Turn to John chapter 8, verse 41. We'll look at a passage here where Jesus 
He's speaking to some individuals. John chapter 8, verse 41. Now these are, these are people, when he speaks to them, who obviously have moved away from God and are doing the exact opposite. This is what we've been talking about, okay? Verse 40, 41 says, Ye do the deeds of your father. Then said they to him, We be not born of fornication. We have one Father, even God. Jesus said unto them, If God were your Father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God. Neither came I of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? Even because you cannot hear my word. Ye are, ye are of your Father the devil. And the lusts of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. Now that's some pretty strong words, isn't it? Jesus, I mean, these guys were Jews. They, were, they believed they were descendants of Abraham and they had the law and, and they probably believed they were living a fairly good life in terms of keeping that law. And Jesus plainly tells them, your father is the devil. Wouldn't have gone down too well. But this shows us how far, they're actually from God, how far away they were from God. It shows... These this, this people hadn't just made a mistake of, of doing a small sin. These people were children of the devil. Not just, not just you know, people who made a mistake every now and then. These were children of the devil. So Jesus is, actually, is talking to people who are far away from God, running in exactly the opposite direction and hating him at the same time. But I want us to ask a question. Who was Jesus talking to? Who was he talking to specifically? Go back to verse 31 and you'll find something interesting. Verse 31 says, Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, If you continue in my word, then ye are my disciples indeed. Who was he talking to? He wasn't talking to people that, that hated him. He was talking to people that believed him, that believed he was the Messiah. And he started to question that belief. He started to then test it. And he says to them, if you continue in my word, then ye are my disciples indeed. He wasn't speaking to hardened Pharisees and Sadducees. Oh, in previously he was in that passage. But then he turned to this, this group that was saying, yeah, we believe you're the Messiah. We want to follow you. And Jesus says, oh, you want to follow me? Okay. Then if you're going to follow me, you have to follow my word. Basically, he challenged their belief and, said, and basically told them that their belief was true if they continued in his word. Correct? If they continued in his word. If they continued to listen and to follow that word for their, for their own lives. If they accepted that truth for themselves. We spoke the Wednesday about listening, didn't we? 
about hearing the word of God. And Jesus warns people about how they hear and what they hear. Because he says, what you hear will ultimately be your judge. And even though Jesus had multitudes following him and listening to his words and probably were mesmerised by the way he taught and the way he spoke, they weren't necessarily there to listen to what he had to say. They might have been there for other reasons. They may have been there with preconceptions and, and had been there for a free feed. Maybe they were just interested because everyone else was going along and this was a done thing. Let's come and go and hear this. We've got nothing to do this afternoon. Let's go and hear what this guy has to say for a bit of light entertainment. The danger is in listening but not receiving. Because the more you hear, the more you listen, and the less you receive, the more judgment will be poured out upon you. Even though they may have believed that he was the Messiah who God had sent, the question or the real truth was that they weren't listening to him. They, in other words, they had stopped a long time ago listening to what God had to say about anything. Look at 43. Jesus says, Why do you not understand my speech? Even because you cannot hear my word. Hang on a minute. They couldn't understand Jesus' speech. Was he speaking their language? Yeah, he was speaking their language. Same, same language. Why couldn't they understand his speech? Because they couldn't accept the truth. Their ears had become dull to the truth. They had listened to lies for so long that the truth no longer could make a dent. It couldn't get in. Their, their world view, the way they saw the world around them and everything, how was so enmeshed in lies, was so built upon layer and layer of lies in their lives, that's all they heard. Remember Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me? Well, these guys weren't sheep listening to him. These sheep were going in a different direction and they were listening to someone else. Who did they listen to? Who did they understand? Well, Jesus plainly says they listened to their own father, the devil, and they did his lusts. How do they do, why do they do his lusts? Because they spent all their time listening to him. Now, when we say listen, we mean actually accept what's being said. That's why John the Apostle says, He that committeth sin is of the devil. For the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. How? If people start listening to God rather than the devil. The devil's been playing the same tune for a very long time. He's been saying the same things for a very long time. And people are attracted to what he has to say. And people are willing to accept what he has to say, which then leads them down this path of sin. On the other hand, if they had accepted and listened to the testimony of Jesus, they would have loved him. Verse 42 says, Jesus said unto them, If God were your father, you would love me. That's the natural response to doing, to doing what? To listening to what God has to say. If we, if we listen to what God has to say, you will naturally love him. If you listen to what the devil has to say, 
you will naturally then hate God. It's who you're listening to that makes the difference. This is the, this is the point I want to I really emphasise here. It's who you spend your time listening to. And you might say, well, I don't listen to Satan. I don't spend my time listening to, to what he has to tell me. I don't believe him. Really? Are you sure? How do you know? How do you know that what you have in your head is in part lies and part truth? Do you love God perfectly? Jesus says if you listen to him, you will love him. Now who can put up their hand this morning and say they love Jesus perfectly this morning? So does it mean we're listening perfectly? No. We don't listen perfectly. And they didn't listen perfectly in his day either. Most of, most of people around him in his day didn't listen to him at all. That's why they ended up crucifying him. Otherwise they would have loved him. Most men throughout the ages, from his day when he came to this earth, down to today, have not loved him. They haven't listened to him. They choose not to listen. Otherwise they would have loved him. Today, most men don't listen to him. They choose not to listen, therefore they don't love him. They can't hear him. They can't respond to his voice because their ears are tuned to a voice of another master who they listen to very carefully. Men don't hear him today. For if they heard the voice of God, if they heard the message of God, they would turn and love him. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3 says, But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them, blinded and deaf to God's word. But how does Satan blind people? How does he get them at a stage where they can't even hear what God is saying that they're so, they have so many barriers around them that when God's word hits it, it actually bounces straight back and they can't absorb it into their own lives how, how is it that he can get people to that particular state what lie can be so convincing that people refuse to hear the truth Satan has one fundamental lie that he tells in many many ways one really big one that he starts the ball rolling with with every person and throughout every age. He used this from the beginning and he still uses it today. This lie basically is God is not who he says he is. God is not who he says he is. He's different. You might say, what's well, pretty basic sort of thing it's easy to see through isn't it well no because you can put that same lie in a number of different ways the fundamental lie that God is not who he says he is means that Satan attacks first and foremost God's character that's the thing he tries to tear down first in a person's life he attacks God's character such things such as his goodness his power his wisdom, his holiness, his justice. That's the first thing Satan plants. 
to get someone to start shifting. Remember what he did with Adam and Eve in the garden? Turn to Genesis chapter 3 verse 4. Just to, let's just make it clear here. Genesis 3 verse 4 says, And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. Now hang on a minute. What had God said previously? They will die. Yet Satan comes along and says, Nah, you're not going to die. So what was he saying basically? That God lied to them. Did he not? Very simple. God has lied to you. And then he goes on and questions God's goodness, accusing him of trying to protect his unique position in knowing good and evil. Look at verse 5. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. How did that leave Eve, and Adam for that matter? How would that have left them concerning their relationship with God? Did it plant enough of a seed of doubt in their minds? But they started to question his character? Well, if he's lied to me in this manner, in this particular instance, how can I trust him with anything else he has to say? If he's withholding something from me, just so he can keep the upper hand upon me, then how can I trust him with anything else in my life? Maybe he's holding out as well. Satan plays a very neat trick of throwing mud at God. And then people look at it and say, oh, there, there might be some truth in that. And then once you're in that position, then you're vulnerable for anything. Satan attacks God's character first, and that weakens a person's position and, and relationship to God. Remember what, our, what, our, what we were created for? For that relationship with God, to be perfect, to be focused, to be loving, to be all-embracing. And as soon as someone plants a seed of doubt, that God is, might be a liar. God is not telling you the truth here, his character is not all that he, he says it is. All of a sudden then, that, that relationship begins to take a turn. The reason is simple. When a person's character is put into question, you are less likely to trust that person with other things in your life. Politicians are fantastic at that. Politicians have known this principle for a really, really long time and they use it really, really well. And they do it on both sides, mind you, not both, on three and four and how many there are the political parties there are. They all do exactly the same. What they do is they'll, they'll plant seeds of doubt about a particular person's character to turn you off them, that they can't, to show you that they can't be trusted. For example, let's say someone made a simple comment about a politician such as, he hates women. I heard that he forces his wife to make a meal for him every night. He forces his wife to cook for him every night. The simple comment, whether true or not, has planted a seed of doubt in someone's mind about this particular person's view on women, his demeanour as a husband, 
It paints him as a more harsh a person, a mean person, a person who sees women as subservient, below him. How can you trust this man to run a country if he thinks that women are lower class than, than, than men? How can this person be a leader? How can he show compassion? How can he give consideration to all these other minority groups that are struggling? There's no way you can vote for this person, is there? Do you see how the, the game plays? All you do is just throw in a comment, not even a harsh one, just throw a comment that starts to put into question a person's character and create an atmosphere of mistrust. And then pretty soon, if you play the game properly, people mistrust and will not follow in any particular way. And you know something? God, sorry, Satan uses exactly the same tactic against God. And he's done it from the beginning. You know, you can't really trust God with that. I know something. He hasn't told you. Because if you had the fruit, you'd, you'd live forever. You'd still live, but you'd know a lot more. Satan's like that nasty school person. I don't know if any of you have been through that situation. You know, you might have had a friend at school and, you know, peer pressure is a fantastic thing, isn't it, at school? Absolutely fantastic. You know, if you, and if you do something that might, might hurt someone else or you've made a mistake or someone just for the fun of it wants to ostracise you, what do they do? They go around and whisper something to the other people in the, in the school and turn your friends against you. Ever had that happen? Ever seen that happen? The school kids are very good at it. Very good manipulators like that. All they've got to do is start one little rumour and it spreads very quickly. In fact, these days with Facebook, it's even faster because if someone doesn't like someone else, all they've got to do is post a couple of uh, comments on the, uh, on the net and immediately all the friends know, all at the same time, this person is like this. I saw this person doing this, or this person is bad because of such and such. So all of a sudden, their character's smeared, their character's ruined. And do you know what, what teenagers, a lot of them end up doing? Killing themselves. It's one of the nastiest, hurtful things you could ever do to a, to a young person. To make them feel as if they've got no friends. To make them feel as if the world hates them. Well, Satan's like one of those people. Satan's been doing that trick on God. Now, God's got big shoulders. God doesn't have to have the, the universe love him, but he knows that he created the universe for that purpose. But yet, Satan's going around whispering all the while that God's character isn't up to scratch. Therefore, he's not worthy. Let me share some of those maybe possible comments with you. God doesn't really love you. If he did, he wouldn't let you suffer in that way. Have you heard that one before? That's a good one. God has abandoned you because you're a sinner. He's given up on you because you still fail all the time. He's not wasting his time with you anymore. Have you heard that one? There is no pleasing God. He's never satisfied. God's word can't be trusted because he isn't trustworthy. Now remember what we're created for. 
Our whole nature was to worship him, love him, obey him, serve him. Our whole being was created so that we would connect forever with him. If God can't be trusted, I can't trust his word for my life, can I? I can't trust him. I can't then properly worship him. There's a, 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 um, one of my favourite um, books is Tozer's book on God. And Tozer says it very clearly. He goes, your level of worship of God, the amount you worship him in your life, the amount you bow down to him and you adore him, is only going to match what your view is of him. Isn't it? If your view is high and perfect and glorious and, and loving and in every possible way higher than you can imagine, then you will worship him accordingly. If your view of God is a little bit less than that, then you'll worship him the same way. If you have a little God, a God that you can manipulate, a God that you can, you can uh, design and do whatever you want with, a God who's not really that strong or powerful, he does not really that just, then you'll worship him accordingly as well. If God can't be trusted, then how can I worship him? How can I really obey him? How can I give him all of my life? You can't. You can't properly love God and allow him to be all, all that he is. So what's left? What's left then for a person who knows there's a God but can't properly trust him. Where can I devote my attention, my love, my obedience to if he's not worthy of my, of my attention? Guess where? Here. I'm trustworthy. I'm. I can trust myself. I'm worthy of my own attention. So my focus shifts from God to me. I spend all my attention, my love, my attention, my focus, my devotion, my time on who? On me. Because I am God. And who will I spend all my time serving and obeying and pleasing? Me. In every possible way. Because I am worth it. Doesn't our society teach us that? Doesn't, doesn't society teach you that you are so worth it, that you deserve it all? That you're the one, you are the centre of the universe. You are the one that you need to be focusing on. You deserve it. You're number one. Don't let other people get in your way. Don't let other people rob you of what you deserve. With God out of the picture... The only reasonable alternative is myself. That's why Jesus says, He that findeth his life shall lose it. And he that loseth his life for my sake shall find it. In other words, my life is more valuable than God's. I'm lost. The moment I put myself before God in terms of value and worship, I'm lost. That's why Romans also, and it is, I think, pointing this one out as well, why Romans reminds us that the downward spiral of sin starts when men exchange the truth of God for a lie and worship the creature rather than the creator. That's what we're prone to do. We worship the creature 
rather than the Creator. The result is seen over and over and over again throughout all the ages. It's, it comes out in the me culture in our society. It comes out in communism where it says, you know, we worship the state. We have to worship ourselves. We are. The state is the most important thing. It comes out with, uh, with Hitler who wanted to create the Aryan race, the perfect race of people. So what does he have to do? He's got to kill all those other ones or get rid of all the other ones who aren't as perfect. Comes out in eugenics. People trying to manipulate the races, killing off the people that aren't as smart or intelligent or, or, as, or as, as adapted. The list goes on and on and on. Every evil in society, every one of these things that we call, talk about sin that, that infiltrates people's lives are really the result of people worshipping themselves rather than the true God. And you might say, but hang on a sec, what about all the other gods? Well, that's a god of their own making, isn't it? That is a god of their own making, made in whose image? Their own. Because even though I might say, I don't worship myself, I worship another god, that god is a god of my own making. That god is an idol that I've created that I'm happy to worship because he's a reflection of me. How do we resist this, this attack by Satan in our lives? Well... Remember, it goes back to who you listen to, where you spend your time listening, who you're paying attention to. The Bible is the revelation of God's character. The Bible shows us who God actually is. It tells us about who he is in terms of his love, his, his holiness, his justice, his his mercy, his patience. The Bible paints that perfect picture of God and how we are to respond to him. To fight this fight effectively, to understand and stop Satan at the beginning when he starts by besmirching God's character is to know God's word thoroughly. That's how Jesus did it. Jesus knew God's word thoroughly and even though Satan tried to twist God's word against him, Jesus knew God's word. He didn't just play with it. It wasn't just something he kept on the side and read when he just felt like it. It was something he'd memorised and kept. He knew. He knew what God was like. He knew his word and he had a vital relationship with God. If we listen to God's word and seek his presence in our lives, our estimation of him, our view of him will be higher and higher and higher. And we will admire him more. We will love him more strongly. We will serve him more thoroughly. We need to read the word intensively. Extensively and intensively. We need to read it all the time, know it, and but also study it. We need to have it memorised. We need to meditate on it. We need to believe it and, and accept it for ourselves. Because most of the problems that Christians have is that they'll read a passage and they'll say, this does not pertain to me, really. I don't see how this works for me. So what they'll do is I'll put it to the side and move to the next passage that may fit what they think. And then they find themselves in problems over and over and over again. They fall into the same vicious cycle. 
of sin in their lives. Remember, who you spend time listening to will be foundational to how you behave in this life. The more you listen to God, the more you will esteem him and live for him. The more you listen to Satan's lies, the more you will distrust God and worship yourself. There are your two options. Turn to Mark chapter 4 verse 23 as we close up. Mark 4.23 says, If any man have ears to hear, let him hear. And he said unto them, Take heed what ye hear. With what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you. And unto you that hear, more shall be given. For he that hath, to him shall be given. And he that hath not, from him shall be taken even that which he hath. Listen to that. Did you hear that? If you have a desire to know God, to listen to him, God will give you more and more and more. For the one who has no real desire for God, God will even not give you any more, but take away whatever you have as well. And it goes back to that Romans passage. Because they, they denied the existence of God, because they don't want to have anything to do with him, God hands them over to themselves. But if you have... A desire within you to want to know him more on a personal level and you put the effort in God says that he is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him he will reward you for your effort you might say hang on God, God doesn't reward yes he does he rewards he is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him so the question is how diligent are you when you're seeking do you put the key's kingdom first before everything else in this world? Is he your focus? Have you tried? It's easy to say, oh, God's first in my life, and then go and live whatever way you want. But do, you, do your actions, does the time you spend with it, reflect what you're actually saying? If it doesn't, then you're just kidding yourself. You're playing games. Coming to church on a Sunday morning won't do it for you. My, my prayer today is that we can say, along with uh, the psalmist in Psalm 73, Whom have I in heaven but thee? Whom have I? I've got no one except for you. And there is none upon the earth that I desire beside thee. How do they listen to those words? I've got no one in heaven but you. Hang on a sec, all the angels and everything else that's up there. No, there's only you that I've focused on. And I've got no one on this earth that I want more than you. That should be our desire. That should be our, uh, who we are as people. He, he goes on to say, My flesh and my heart faileth, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For lo, they that are far from thee shall perish. Thou hast destroyed all them that go whoring from thee. But it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord that I might declare all thy works. If that's your desire today then run with it. Read, listen to what he has to say. 
When we leave these doors today, will you be any different than when you walked in? Will you? How many sermons have you heard in your life? Have you lost track of how many sermons? Have you forgotten most of them? Have they had an impact on you? Are these words that I'm speaking as blowing in the wind? Or will you leave these doors today saying, God, I want God to be first in my life. And I'm going to do everything in my power to make sure that he is. I'm going to show him that he is. I'm going to know him so deeply that everything around me pales into insignificance when it comes to him. Is that your desire today? If it's not, don't play games. Don't expect to live a victorious Christian life. Expect to be miserable and sad. Simple. If you're not going to put first God first in your life, expect to be miserable and sad and dejected and continuing through a cycle of sin and, and, and ups and downs like a yo-yo. Because you're not putting him first. Putting him first will cost. Jesus says he who finds his life is going to lose it. So what does it mean? It means we have to put ourselves last and say you're going to be first regardless of what it means in this life. God should be our heart's desire. He should be our portion. We should desire to be in his presence. Guys, if anything in this life, the Bible, the Bible says that he who looks forward to the coming of Jesus purifies himself. Why is that? Because you know something? When, when that becomes your focus and you're saying, I just want to see him. It's got nothing to do with, with the mansions he's building for me in heaven. It's got nothing to do with the gold roads. It's got nothing to do with seeing angels. It has nothing to do with anything else. I want to see him. Why? Because he's everything that I need. His character is perfect. There is no one else I can trust in this world, especially myself. And he is everything that I need in life. You know, if, if, if Satan ever tries to, to belittle God's character in front of you, all you need to do is remind him of one thing, the cross. If anything showed me God's character more than... and how wonderful he is, how loving he is, how patient and merciful and kind and generous and giving, it's the cross. The cross changed our lives and the cross should keep on changing our lives. Put God first and listen to him. Don't be distracted. God bless you. Thank you.